0: This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here we go. It's hour three. Just having a fantastic discussion off air with our next guest, Dan Riskin, the Canadian evolutionary biologist and media personality. But he's got more fascinating things to discuss than what we were actually talking about before we picked it up in hour three here. So uh, that's just, you know... We crack the mic and we continue on. as We matter- do.
1: If, if you thought it was a good conversation off air, just wait till we get going here.
0: Well, you know, uh, what I wanted to talk about specifically is something I know you're passionate about and uh, intimately involved in. As a matter of fact, you're going to be moderating a panel discussion at the ROM tomorrow on a mission that Canada's uh, very deeply involved with, the Canadian Space Agency mission to collect an asteroid sample as part of a NASA team. Now, I'm fascinated by this. In fact, uh, just by way of a preamble, I was watching WNED uh, over the last two weeks or so, and there have been a couple of asteroid-related stories, like the big one that wiped out the dinosaurs. Yeah. And uh, then there was the toot uncommon discovery of the tomb in 1922, and where uh, metallurgists and I guess whatever determined that uh, the ceremonial dagger that was buried in the tomb with them was actually made from an asteroid because they couldn't identify any of those materials from from Earth.
1: Isn't that amazing? It was an iron dagger, and it was absolutely from an asteroid. And whether the ancient Egyptians had any sense of that where that that was what made it special or whether that was just where you found iron at that time but uh that's that's a, a question for my colleagues at the ROM to answer but um asteroids are a big deal and the thing is I mean we've if you go to the ROM you can see they've got a whole cabinet full of meteorites but they don't ever have a meteor because a meteor as soon as it touches the ground on Earth, it becomes a meteorite, and it has to come in through the atmosphere and it gets burned up. And when that happens, all the chemicals in there get changed. They get cooked. I mean, it, it lights up the sky. It's white-hot. That's why it lights up like that. So nobody's ever been able to look at one of these things before it went through the oven, so to speak. And so the purpose of this mission, which is NASA-led, but the Canadian Space Agency has been on board since day one, and they built one of the instruments that's going on, uh, that is on this spaceship. Um, it's to go out into space, catch to an asteroid, check it out take a little sample, and then send the sample back to Earth, have that sample enter the atmosphere with its own heat shield and its own parachute. It's going to land. They know exactly what day and what part of the Earth it's going to land. they got the whole thing planned. It's going to land in, like, July 2024. And they know exactly where. Um, And we're, for the first time, going to have a sample of a meteor that is not a meteorite. And that tells us a ton of things about the origins of the solar system.
0: So we can control the trajectory of the re-entry, then?
1: It's ridiculous. Yeah. So they've got this... So this thing launched uh, 2016 uh, on the top of a big old rocket it went out, it was going toward the, the, uh, the asteroid that it wanted to catch up to, but it didn't have enough speed, so it did a gravity flyby of the Earth, and this is this thing where if it's going, uh, if the Earth is going around the Sun and it has its momentum going around in a circle, and this thing comes at it from behind, it can slingshot ahead and steal some of the Earth's momentum to be going much faster, so after it did its flyby, the Earth was going a teeny tiny bit more slowly around the sun and this thing was really flying that's how it got out to this asteroid Bennu it got there basically over this past Christmas break just a couple weeks ago now it's taking all kinds of pictures and then it's going to be there for 19 months taking all these scanning images and all this stuff before it finally takes this little circular thing that looks like uh, the air filter in your car it's going to put it down on the surface it blows a little puff of nitrogen gas that causes some little rocks to come up and get caught in its filter. And then it takes that thing and puts it inside the spaceship and then it takes a full, you know, three years more before it finally gets back to Earth because it's so far away.
0: This asteroid Bennu uh, that we're kind of uh, rendezvousing with. How big is it? It's one CN
1: Tower in diameter, roughly. So it's about 500 meters in diameter. So if you see the CN Tower on the skyline tonight, that's about how big this is. And that's a big enough asteroid that if it hit the Earth it'd be very bad. And so there are lots of different reasons to look at asteroids and to try to understand them. I mean, they could be a source for materials, for building and stuff. You could have an asteroid that's made entirely out of diamonds, hypothetically. So, you know, what kinds of things are out there in those asteroids and is mining those something that could be a a feasible industry? Um, But you're also curious about whether they're going to come crashing into Earth and understanding what they're made of and how energy that comes from the sun gets burnt off on them and how it changes their trajectory when that happens. All these little pieces help us, better protect the earth from these giant rocks that could at any time do to us what happened to the dinosaurs
0: well to that point there was a cheesy movie that came out i don't know about uh, maybe eight ten years ago bruce willis oh yeah uh going up to intercept uh what was looking to be an asteroid ready to crash into earth and uh, destroy everything that we hold sacred uh and the possibility of changing its orbit or its trajectory uh how practical are we uh, is that uh, something that could be done
1: you know what it what what tends to happen is that these things uh we see them when they happen it's like you don't see them coming i mean we know about a whole bunch of them and we know where they are and we know what their trajectory is. But the great example is uh, when I was working at Daily Planet on Discovery, we we had in the news, by the way, there's gonna be a close flyby of this of this asteroid and it's gonna happen on this day. And while all the telescopes on Earth were pointing at that thing, that cra it was that that crazy meteorite fell in Russia, in Chelyabinsk, that that lit right. up the sky and like a lot of people were injured and there were shockwaves and it broke windows and um, nobody saw that one coming. So we were all looking at this other... Other one and this other one snuck in from behind and, and we didn't see it at all so um it is a real threat and i think we don't have the technology right now to deal with it but uh this kind of an investigation points us down the road to having the technology and increasingly it's although bruce willis is uh unarguably the right person to send if we're going to send somebody. <laughs> um, it may be that sending a person at all might not be the way to go. It might be that shooting a laser at it so that you can uh, redirect it, uh, which which is part of this mission, is to look at how effective that would be. Um, maybe a laser would be the trick. If you can hit it with a laser and get it to just... Burn a little bit of material on one side so that it works like a very bad rocket engine, and then pushes it a little bit off course. Maybe you could get it to miss the
0: Earth. There's a lot of that space junk flying around out there, isn't there?
1: There is, and and humans have a lot of space junk out there too. And in fact, this uh, this uh, Osiris Rex uh, spacecraft, after it sends its sample back to Earth, is going to go into a stable orbit around the sun. And one of the questions I'm going to ask those panelists uh, that are here from the Canadian Space Agency, uh, one of the questions I have for Friday is, why don't you just crash that thing into the sun or something, or even into the earth, so it'll burn up. It seems like there's enough junk out there. Why would you want to keep it in a stable orbit so it's going to stay out there? And I'm sure they've got a good answer to that.
0: You know, the one that crashed into Chelyabinsk a number of years ago and caused all kinds of damage and flattened the forest and everything was not that big. Gives you a sense the relative uh, impact or power, the energy released by these things. Uh, If I recall correctly, am am I right to say it wasn't that big?
1: Yeah, the one in Russia that was just like a, a couple years ago, that one was, if I remember correctly, it was something, like 30 meters in diameter or something like that. And this thing, again, is 500 meters in diameter. The one that hit the earth that wiped out the dinosaurs, I think they think it might have been a kilometer in diameter. So way, way bigger. Actually, only double the size of Bennu. But um, I, I believe one of the things I read recently is that when the, the meteor that killed the dinosaurs, when it hit the ground the top of the meteor was still at the height where airplanes fly today. So it was a huge thing that hit the Yucatan Peninsula and caused a nuclear winter and and uh, made a big change to who gets to live here on Earth. <laughs> right. Um, but um, and, and The thing is, though, that they're not all doom and gloom. They're really interesting, and they are these time capsules from the earliest solar system that tell us what the Earth was made of. I mean, the Earth has rocks that are just as old as the rocks on an asteroid, but the Earth melts them it has these tectonic plates that move around it reworks the rock so like if you're trying to find a rock that hasn't been melted and changed since the origin of the solar system you can't find it here on earth they're just not here anymore because they've all been reworked they've all been recycled and made into other things if you go to that asteroid Bennu those things have just been floating around doing nothing since the dawn of time since uh, the, the planetary disk formed around the sun
0: There you go, the dawn of time, which is why you're the evolutionary biologist, (laughs) as well as media personality. Dan Riskin's with us, by the way. Uh, Just to follow up on this, this is the panel that you're moderating on Friday at the ROM. What time is that? Is that accessible to the public?
1: Yeah, it's at 6 it's totally free, uh, but you just have to reserve a spot online. So, so, uh, so you just go online and you say I'd like to come, and you get your tickets, and then you can come. They're just doing that to make sure uh, they get the right number of people. But uh, it's it's free, and it's and it's going to be uh, somebody from York University who built a Canadian instrument that's on there. It's going to be uh, people from the Canadian Space Agency, people from the ROM, geologists who study these things, and somebody from an uh, organization called the Planetary Society. So it's it's going to be a good night.
0: You know, I'm kind of curious, too. There's another development that's just recently come out, uh, or to my attention anyway, as an evolutionary biologist. (laughs) I guess this might right be uh, in your purview or wheelhouse. Tattoos and what they say about a person. You've actually studied this.
1: Yeah, you know what? Tattoos are a really neat thing from an evolutionary perspective because it's, what are you advertising to potential mates when you get a tattoo? And it used to be like, you know, 30 years ago, even 10 years ago, frankly, 20 years ago, uh, that you were saying, I'm a criminal, I'm a a bad person. But now, like, you know, doctors get them. They're becoming way more popular with women. um, And the number of people that have tattoos has doubled in the last 12 years or so in the United States. And it just means something different. It used to be that somebody who had sleeve tattoos was something to be scared of. And now it's not. So people are doing these studies to find out if, how that demographic is changing. And so there was this paper that came out today um, and it looked at whether uh, you could tell anything about how risky a person's behavior is if they have tattoos. So what they, it's pretty simple. They just did a big survey and they asked, uh, I think it was uh, 3,000 people. Um, and they asked them, Uh, some basic questions. So uh, how healthy would you say you are on a scale of one to six? Uh, How uh, have you ever been diagnosed with a mental health issue um, do you have trouble sleeping but they also asked them some interesting questions are you a smoker uh, have you ever spent time in jail how many sex partners have you had in the last year and these are things that are associated with riskiness and what they found is that even though tattoos are becoming more prevalent there is still a difference between people who do have tattoos and people who do not have tattoos people that do not have tattoos uh, are sort of the baseline population they're about 70 percent of the people out there and then you have people with tattoos it's about 30% of the population. And overall, their health is the same as people who don't have tattoos. So they, they score their overall health the same. But um, they tend more frequently to have been diagnosed with a mental health issue. They tend more frequently to be having trouble sleeping right now. They more frequently are smokers. Uh, they tend to have spent time in jail more frequently than people who don't have tattoos. And uh, people who have tattoos, this is the, the one that should be on all the headlines people who have tattoos on average, have had more sex partners in the last year than people who don't have tattoos. Now, before everybody who's got a tattoo listening gets all, you know, excited and proud of themselves, the difference (laughs) is, like, between 1.1 partners and 1.5 partners in the last year. So, you know, it's significant, but, you know, it's, it's not a ton more. And I don't think the tattoos necessarily are what got the partners. That's a whole other discussion.
0: Well, okay. Uh, but it, what, it, what it does reflect, though, is shifting social mores, right?
1: It does. It, it reflects a change in who goes out to get a tattoo. And, and, you know, like, I think I think of a tattoo as an advertisement about your youth. I So this is totally just me talking about the way I think about this. When you're uh, – if you look at a, a, a songbird – that has a bright yellow chest. It's saying, listen to me sing, look at my bright yellow chest. This thing is so bright and yellow that I know other birds that would eat me can see me, but I'm so healthy that it doesn't even matter. I can have this bright yellow chest, and I'm so good at dodging eagles that I can live. If you get tattoos, I think that part of what you're arguing is, I am so youthful and looking so good that I can cover myself in ink, and I don't even have to think about the the long-term Issues with that. I just look so good. It it doesn't even matter. It's almost like you're putting something on yourself that you know is down the road going to be this saggy picture of whoever you have on your, you know, your Justin Trudeau tattoo that you got on your chest is going to look all saggy and look like somebody else. And if you made it look like Pierre Trudeau, um, but... (laughs) But, you know, even though you got this tattoo, you're saying, I, I, I'm I so healthy, it doesn't even matter. And so it it doesn't really fit with the risky behavior stuff that this paper is getting at, but I really think it's an interesting choice that people make. And that said, I also have a tattoo, so it's... Uh, well,
0: there you go. I yeah. mean, uh, yeah, it, there's no conflict of interest at all in your uh, conjecture <laughs> here. Or, by no. the way, but no, it, a lot of this is also culturally uh, determined because, I mean, certain cultures frown on that, or others, yes. you know, uh, would you say? And, uh, I mean, can we draw then a blanket conclusion because cultures differ in terms of uh, how they recognize tattoos.
1: Absolutely. You know what? This paper only looks at the United States, but what they do nicely that other studies have not done is to make a difference between one tattoo and two tattoos and three tattoos and a bunch of tattoos, and also to differentiate between in tattoos that don't show and tattoos that do show in a visible place like your neck or something like that. And also they looked at whether you have a tattoo that could be deemed offensive. So, you know, tattoos that might put people off. And they found that those trends that I mentioned were exaggerated. The more tattoos you had or the more visible they were or the more offensive they might be. And so that might be part of what's driving this trend. So it might be that if you have... You know, a small tattoo on your lower back that nobody sees except when you're, you know, at yoga or something like that. Um, it's still significant for people in that demographic, but it's not as dramatic as it is for the person who has a big tattoo on their neck that, that offends people.
0: So, yeah, or a tattoo of a snake on your face.
1: Right, right. Like you have. Yeah. I see that <laughs> right now. People can't well, see what you look like. So, well, that's I'm trying why to paint I'm on radio. <laughs> Come on. Uh,
0: anyway, otherwise, I'd be covering your beat. Listen. And Mike Tyson, you know, uh, when he went with that full Maori yeah. thing there, I mean, uh, yeah, who's, I think, Who's I gonna think, tell him that's offside.
1: Not me, not me. You'd have to, you'd have to be a tough person with a snake tattoo on your face to do that. <laughs> well, there you go. So I'll leave uh, it to you.
0: Back to me, thank you. <laughs> always, it always reverts back to me, and I appreciate you doing that. Uh, Dan Riskin again is a Canadian evolutionary biologist and media personality. Tomorrow at 6 p.m. at the ROM on the matter of uh, going to Bennu, uh, the asteroid, to take a sample in the Canadian uh, mission. That's a A large part of that. I appreciate you coming in. It's always fascinating. I look forward to doing it again real soon.
1: We'll do it soon. Thanks again.
0: You got it. In a moment, we're going to find out about, well, education at the primary level and in kindergarten as well. The president of the Elementary Teachers of Toronto is going to weigh in on what is being at least consulted about now, and that's uh, lifting the caps on these class sizes for junior.